your Bible, open me to 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel chapter 24. Today we will put a bow on our series, having wrapped it up as we spent the last two or three months uh, kind of walking through the life of King David as it's revealed to us in First and Second Samuel. And I've titled this series, Chasing the Crown. And today we will conclude our study as we have been walking through his life. I remind you that God had created a nation. He created a people. He had called a nation. He had called a people to follow him, to depend upon him, to find their satisfaction in him, to find their significance from him. And that began all the way back with Abraham. But in Instead of trusting God and instead of being satisfied with God, the people looked for their satisfaction. The people looked for their significance in a king. They came to the nation's pastor by the name of Samuel, and they said to Samuel, the prophet, they said, we want a king like all these other nations have a king. And God gave them a king. They had King Saul, who was a disappointment. And they had King David, as we've noticed his life who really has the same result as Saul. They never find that significance. They never find that satisfaction in any king. Our lives parallel their lives because all of us, we all are chasing a crown. We are seeking someone, we're seeking something to give us significance, to satisfy us, to provide us with some sense of worth. And the reason that we have that desire is because God put that desire in us. God placed that desire in us because his goal is for us to desire him, for us to long for him. But we will always be disappointed when we seek any other king other than God because God is the only king that can be trusted. He's the only king who can satisfy the longings of our heart. Every other king, every other thing that you chase or person that you pursue looking for that satisfaction, looking for that significance, every other king will always, always overpromise and under-deliver. And the final scene that we have from David's life that the author of 2 Samuel paints for us reminds us that God is the kind of king we need, that we find in him that which we will never find anywhere else. Let's look at our text, 2 Samuel chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah, take a census. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. So David wants a count of all the men. Look at verse 3. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of the Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king delight, that's a key word, delight in this thing. 
But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aurora, from the city that's in the middle of the valley, toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh and the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan, and from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortresses of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites, and they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people, and David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Let me pause here for just a second, because a question comes to mind. What is it that David did that was really so bad? What's wrong with what he did. I mean, wasn't he being organized? Wasn't he watching the latest Netflix special on how to get everything organized? And wasn't he trying to, to just get everything, all his ducks in a row and, and, all the, and everything else connected to it? Go back to verse 3 to where Joab said, why are you king? Why are you delighting in doing this? David found his delight and how strong his army was. See, that shows us something about David. That shows us his pride. He's rejoicing in how strong he has made his army. But it's also showing us his lack of faith. Because God had promised him victory. God had promised him that he would win. And yet David instead, he wants to be sure that he's going to win. So he counts to make sure he has enough people to win. Do, do, do you sympathize a little bit or identify a whole lot with David? David, you know what God has said. You know the promises of God, but you want to take matters into your own hands just to make sure it goes the way you think it should go. Anybody? Okay, bunch of liars at First Baptist Milton this morning. I mean, we follow the very same pattern that David followed. David should have been boasting in God's strength, not his strength. He should have been trusting in the promises of God, not in his army. And what is very ironic about David's life is that 2 Samuel ends with David committing the same sin that the people committed when 1 Samuel begins. The sin of the people in 1 Samuel was that Israel, they wanted a king to replace God as their security and their treasure. David wants an army to replace God as his security and treasure. So here's how the narrative continues in verse 11. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, thus says the Lord, these things I offer you. Okay, you sinned, here are the consequences. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, here's his options. Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? 
Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. I don't know about you, but neither doors one, two, or three sound too appetizing. Then David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died the people of Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded, and when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David answered, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people." Then Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king, David, said to Aruna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. May I point out to you this morning from this text three attributes of God that we desperately need in a king. If we're going to look to someone to give us strength, if we're going to look to someone to provide our lives with stability, if we're going to look to someone to fill our hearts with purpose and meaning, there's only one place that possesses what we need for that. I want to show you how God shows th uh, us this about himself and how he is the kind of king that we need. First, I want you to notice this. We need a king who is sovereign. If we want stability, if we want significance, if we want strength, we need to look to a king who is sovereign. Now, that word sovereign sounds like a, a, a fancy royal word. We think about her majesty who is a sovereign. But what do we mean when we talk about God's sovereignty? What we mean by God being sovereign is very simply this. God is in control, and nothing happens without God knowing about it. 
it. Now, now watch me, listen to me very carefully. Not everything that happens in this world and in your life is sent from the hand of God. But everything that happens in this world and everything that happens in your life, it must pass through the hand of God. Not everything is sent from his hand. He doesn't cause everything, but everything must pass through his hand. We need a king who is sovereign because we are not. We are not in control. I was sharing with someone yesterday, if, if nothing else, this season of, of COVID and COVID round two has taught me I am not in control. I have to be utterly dependent upon someone else. Life teaches that. We are not sovereign. We are not in control. We aren't able to make all things work together for good. We can't do it. So we need a king who can. Let me show you how we see God's sovereignty in this text. Go back in the text we just read to verse 1. It tells us that the Lord incited David. Compare that to its, uh, and we, we've got it on the screen for you, its parallel text that's recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, which tells us in 1 Chronicles that Satan stood, the same incident, Satan stood against Israel and Satan incited David to number Israel. So one place in Chronicles tells us that Satan incited David and here in 2 Samuel, it tells us that God incited David. Satan versus God, that's about as big a difference as you get. So how can that tension, how can that seemingly discrepancy in Scripture, how can that be rectified? It's the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God solves the problem. The sovereignty of God helps us understand what's taking place. The sovereignty of God resolves the difference. God, what 2 Samuel's telling us, is that God sometimes allows people to fall prey to temptation, which he allowed David to do. In a sense, God is not the one doing it. Obviously, it's Satan who plants the seed of sin, of uh, thinking about this sin in David's heart and in his mind. But God allows this to take place. In, in another sense, God is sovereign over it. He could have stopped it, but he chose not to interfere with David's free will, and he chose to allow it to happen. Both statements are true. Both God incited it and Satan incited Both statements are true. Satan was behind the temptation, yet at the same time, God said, aha, I've got a sovereign purpose behind it. And what this teaches us is that nothing, absolutely nothing, is outside of God's control. And God works all things, even our bad, sinful decisions. He works all things according to his plan. You say, Pastor, I still don't understand. You're not supposed to. 
You see, when we're talking about God in general, but especially when we talk about the sovereignty of God, we need to acknowledge and freely acknowledge, and I freely do so this morning, that there are some things about God that I cannot fit into my box and figure out. There are some things about God that I simply have to accept and receive and believe by faith. We're talking about a God who is infinite in wisdom. We're talking about a God who is infinite in power. We're talking about a God who spoke worlds into creation. We're talking about a God who created the sun and the moon and the stars. We're talking about a God who understands the complexities of an atom and a molecule, and he created it with one single word. I can't get my Wi-Fi signal to work. I can't figure out how to get my DVD hooked up correctly much less understand the complexity of God. You see, God's sovereignty causes us, it compels us, it calls us to come into his presence completely dependent upon his faithfulness to use everything in our lives for his good and for his glory. And friends, we need a God who is sovereign, and I ain't, and neither are you. This is why we need God. We need a king who is sovereign. Number two, we need a king who is willing to show us mercy. Don't confuse mercy and grace. They're they're cousins. They may be even from Arkansas, maybe kissing cousins. Uh, Grace, I'm from Arkansas, so I can say that. Grace is when God gives us something that we do not deserve, unmerited favor. Mercy is when God does not give us what we deserve. We need a king who's going to give us mercy. And no other king that we seek other than God has the mercy that we need. We need mercy because of what we deserve. Look, because of my sin, because of your sin, we deserve death. We deserve separation from God because of our sin against God. Don't miss the mercy of God in this narrative. People read that God sends a plague in response to David's sin, but they fail to see any mercy. God's overreacting, some would argue. God is overreaching. What was so bad about what David did. The bottom line is that what David did was wrong and required mercy because God told him not to do it, and in so doing it, he's disobeying God. But here's mercy. If the people were to continue their current course, God would have destroyed them. Notice our text tells us that God relented, that God stayed his hand. Had the people continued their course of sin, God had every right to destroy them all. The judgment that came to them, yes, it was intense, but in some measure, it saved them from a much more devastating judgment later. God's mercy, don't miss this, God's mercy is saving them from where their trajectory of sin is taken. 
forsaking them. And that's exactly what God's mercy does in our lives. God's mercy in our lives, it saves us from where the trajectory of sin is taking us. We need a God who has as much mercy as David's God did. Don't miss what he said in verse 14. He said, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. The only king with that kind of mercy is God. This is the kind of king we need. We need a king who is sovereign and able to make everything work for his good. We need a king who is willing to give us mercy, but we also need a king who is willing to forgive us. We need forgiveness because we're sinners. And as sinners, we have offended God. David received forgiveness. And you can see it as it's reflected in his heart. He started off wanting to count his army, not rely upon God. His army, his strength was his idol. But when he says in verse 14, I'm in great distress, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. David is saying the safest and best place I could ever be is not in the hands of my military and their strength. The safest, best place that I could ever be is in the hands of God who forgives me. He repents. But don't overlook the fact that he was forgiven because of the gospel. You see, in verses 16 through 18, it tells us that David builds an altar at the very spot where God's judgment ceased through the angel. Okay, the angel of God is executing judgment, it's executing judgment, he's executing judgment, and God says that's enough. He stayed his hand. And on that spot, David built an altar for God. A couple of years later, just a few, a couple of decades go by, and 2 Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1 tells us this. Then Solomon, David's son, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to David his father. This same spot. But this is not the first time that we see this spot. In fact, according to, to most every scholar, evangelical scholar, this spot was the same place where Abraham took his son Isaac and laid him on that altar of wood and prepared to sacrifice him. But God's hand stayed that execution. God's hand stayed that sacrifice. And God said, no, Abraham, not your son. But look, there's a, there, there's a ram caught in the thicket. And that ram points us to Jesus who will become the lamb of God who will sacrifice himself. It's the 
same spot where Solomon built the temple. And at this temple, that is where Israel is going to offer sacrifices, the, the lamb's sacrifice for sin, which points us forward to Jesus Christ. And many scholars believe this is the same spot that Jesus himself was crucified on Mount Calvary, on Golgotha's hill. Look at what David said in verse 17. He spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people. And David said, behold, I have sinned and I've done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? These people, God, what have they done? Let their hand, let, let your hand be against me and against my father's house. David could not die for the people and their sin because he had his own sin to deal with. God was looking forward and God saw Jesus Christ, the ultimate shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd who would one day be smitten for the sheep. You see, our most fundamental need is to be forgiven of sin. And there is only one king who can forgive you of your sin, and his name is Jesus. We need a king who is sovereign, who's able to take our lives and and cause all things to work for our good and his glory. And we need a king who's going to give us mercy, who's not going to give us what we deserve. And we need that king when he gives us that mercy to offer us forgiveness. You will not find that anywhere other than Jesus. You see, the point of David's life is not to point us to King David. The point of his life is to point us to King Jesus. David's life, as it's recorded in 1st, 2nd Samuel, ends by him committing the very sin that started this whole thing. The people wanted a king to replace God, and David wants a king's army to replace God. And you know, it's not just David's story that ends that way. That's one of those odd things about these Old Testament narratives, and New Testament as well, but especially Old Testament narratives, is that they end on this bizarre note. There's this, this big disappointment in someone who should have been the hero of the story. I mean, I think about Moses. He was the lawgiver. He was supposed to be the hero, but Moses can't enter the promised land because he broke the law that he gave. Nehemiah was greatly used by God, but Nehemiah built a city that when people looked at it and they compared it to the old Jerusalem, they began to weep. He was supposed to be the hero, and there's just not that sense. Saul is this tall, good-looking, strapping king that is supposed to be their savior, but his life ends in the exact opposite way. He doesn't save them. He uses them and he abuses them. David is the great king who is a sinner and repeats the sin of his people that started this whole thing. He could not save them from their sin. We need someone to do for us what no one else can do. We need someone 
to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We need a lawgiver who not only keeps the law, but who can forgive us when we break the law. We need a builder who can build an eternal kingdom that will never be shaken. We need a king who will not use his people, but will die in their place. We need a shepherd who will not abuse his sheep. He will not lose his sheep, but he will instead die for them. What we need cannot be found in Moses. It cannot be found in Nehemiah. It cannot be found in Saul. It cannot be found in David. It cannot be found in Jonathan. It can't be found in you. What we need today can only be found in Jesus. And so if you're looking for it somewhere else, may I offer you this deep theological thought. Stop. Stop. If you're not going to find it where you're searching, stop looking for it in that place. You see, as 2 Samuel ends, we're left with a picture. Israel, the people of Israel, die because of the sins of their king. But it points us forward to a king who would die for the sins of his people. As we see Israel receiving punishment because of the sins of their king, David, we receive salvation because of the righteousness of our king, Jesus. Do you have a relationship with him today? There are not many things that I can promise you or guarantee you in this world of unfulfilled promises and unmet expectations. But I can guarantee you this. You will not find strength that you need anywhere else other than Jesus. You will not find significance. I don't care if you read every book in Oprah's book club and listen to every sermon that some bushy-haired, white-teeth preachers out of Houston, Texas preach. You can look the world over to find significance, and you will not find it anywhere but in one place. And it's not this pulpit, and it's certainly not this preacher. It's in Jesus. And so since he's the source of it all, will you just stop chasing everything else and surrender yourself to Jesus? In just a second, I'm going to pray. After I pray, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. If you have not surrendered your life to King Jesus, would you this morning consider that he is the king that you need? In fact, if you would just do me a favor and seek out your significance in him, seek him out for strength, and if he doesn't deliver, move on. But I have yet to meet a person in 20-something years of doing this that has earnestly given 
themselves to Jesus and not found that he was the one who could satisfy the longings of their soul. Maybe you're here today and you've given your heart and life to Jesus, but you need to trust more in his sovereignty. Maybe you need to, as David did, say, I need to fall into the hands of God because his mercy is great. Maybe you need forgiveness. I don't know what's taking place in your life. I don't know what your next step is. But the only thing I will ever ask of you in this regard is whatever table God has put before you, simply put your yes on the table. I don't know what he's put on the table for you. But whatever it is, say yes. You'll never regret following Jesus. Would you follow him today? Would you bow with me as we pray? Father, we are thankful that life reminds us it's not about us. Because in realizing our inadequacies, we can find that you are all that we need. Father, this morning I pray that every need that's represented in this room today will be placed before you. That in this moment, if there are those here today that have no relationship with you, that they would in this moment simply cry out and ask you to save them. That they would realize that their pursuits for significance and meaning and satisfaction in whatever the world has to offer will never be met. But we find in you all that we need. Whatever you're calling us to do today, in this time of commitment, help us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up.